Hey, welcome to Table Flippers Podcast, Ministry of Greater Worship Christian Church in Lancaster, California. I am your host, Apostle Robert Enos. This is where we talk about the issue the church faces and how the church should respond to those issues. Here we will talk about doctrine, theology, politics, social and cultural issues, and how the church is to deal with these things. So get ready for a large dose of truth and get ready for the tables to be flipped. Here at Table Flippers, table flipping is what we do. Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, hope you're having a good day. This is me, your host, Robert Enos of Table Flippers Podcast. Today I want to tell you about a, a book that I wrote some time ago, 2017. And uh, I want to just touch upon some of the issues of this book. I might just go chapter by chapter through it so you kind of get a gist, a feel for it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, of course, because that would be just too much reading. The name of the book is Time for Transition, Embracing Change to Bring Forth Restoration. And this book deals with much of the issues of the day that our church, our, the church, is facing and is based upon scripture, of course, and some of the problems that we've seen uh, in the past, especially around the time of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and then the coming of Samuel, the coming of King Saul, the coming of David, and all the good things and even the bad things that they experienced at that time. And what we're seeing in many regards is the same thing happening today that they were dealing with way back when. So then I wrote a book on it. And for those of you who've been following me on my podcast, I can hit some things pretty hard. Uh, I could get you know, pretty direct on some certain issues. I've even made some people mad with some of my comments. Um, and that's okay. I'll let them be mad. That's all right. But with this, many assume that I have a hatred for the church of Jesus Christ, what I call the church, the bride of Christ. And no, I don't at all. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. That's why I'm working hard to point out issues that need to be fixed, that issues that need to be faced and dealt with in the body of Christ because of my great love for the overall overall body of Christ. Doesn't mean I love everything that's going on in the body of Christ. And that brings me to something that I want to touch upon. So many Christians have bought into this lie, and it's a flat, absolute lie based in foolishness that it's unloving to point out people's problems and sin. It's unloving to bring correction. It's unloving to point out, hey, this is a problem and we need to fix it. That is carnal. That's what the world says love is. And it's even for a worldly standard, from a carnal standard, that's absolute foolishness, complete and total foolishness. Because what parent out there, if you saw your child walking out into the field or into the playground and you saw a big old rattlesnake some, or some dangerous animal out there, wouldn't start yelling at the child to go the other way. But wait, I want to go out and play. Get over here now. And you're not doing it because you hate the child. You do it because you love the child and you don't want the child to get hurt. If you knew there was a big old hungry tiger behind door number one and somebody you cared for started going to open that door, you would do everything in your power to keep them from opening that door. But you see, by today's standard of what people call love, that's unloving. 
Don't tell me what I can and can't do. Don't chastise me. Don't tell me I can't go through door number one if I want to go through door number one, even though you're trying to save my life. And so when I point these things out, it's based in love and because of love. And please don't get into this foolish notion that children are, the children of God are not to be judgmental. Again, that's a worldly, carnal mentality that's crept into the church. And people that hold that view, they misquote or don't fully quote one passage. Don't judge lest you be judged. See right there, we're not allowed to judge. But if you keep reading, Jesus himself gives us the criteria to make righteous judgment. So when he began it by saying, don't judge lest you be judged, basically what he was saying in that one little portion of that passage was, don't just go running around judging before you understand that the exact same measurement of judgment you give is going to be given to you. So get, that's where he finishes up, get the log or the plank out of your eye so you can help your brother get the speck out of his eye. So don't judge until you've dealt with your own self and your own sins. Get the plank out of your own eye. Get that big thing that's out of your own heart so you can judge correctly, see correctly, and help your brother get free of whatever he's dealing with. So don't get into that foolishness about Christians can't judge. Don't get into that foolishness that love doesn't call out sin because that's all it is. It's really foolishness. And what I have found in my many wonderful years on this planet is that the people that hold to those ideas of not being judgmental and what they think love is is not judging, not pointing out faults, not pointing out sin, it's almost always This is almost a perfect science, by the way. They have something hidden in their life that they don't want other people to find or call out. So they've developed this idea, you can't judge me. And if you really loved me, you wouldn't call it out. Because they know they have all this sin in their life. I know pastors and preachers that if you try to correct them on something that they taught that was wrong, they'll get in this whole thing of judgment, you're a Pharisee, you're legalistic, you're religious, and they throw out all of these things. And all of it is is a cover and excuse for their own failures in their own ministry and their own life. This is why I hammer these things. Because that's not love. That's false, fleshly love. And judgment, the reality of it is, come on, people, let's face it. Be honest with yourself. You make judgments every day probably several every hour. And I know this might seem silly, but this is a judgment. If I were to ask you what your favorite flavor of ice cream is or your favorite uh, soft drink or soda is, and you can name something, well, shame on you, you just judged. So if you say you like chocolate best, well, that's a judgment. Or if you say you like vanilla best, that's a judgment. You had to make a judgment to bring that determination up. I like this better than the other one. That's a judgment. You see, judgment in itself is neither right or wrong. It's a neutral kind of a thing. A judgment is just making a decision. If you like one restaurant over the other, you prefer one restaurant over the other, or one food over another food, that's a judgment. 
You see, where people miss it is they look at the word judgment and the idea of judgment, and they they adopt the definition of condemnation and attach it to the word judgment. And that's where we make uh, we make ourselves silly and foolish because we don't even know what the words mean, why we're using them, what it's all about. And, and I could tell you, I could go through Scripture and show you, even through the New Testament, where we are commanded to judge. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it right here. We are actually commanded to judge. We are even told that we will judge the angels one day. So if we can judge angels, why can't we judge the smallest issues in the body of Christ and in the church world? I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's what it tells us. That's what the Bible actually says. So Jesus doesn't tell us not to judge. He just tells us how to judge. First, judge yourself. As a matter of fact, that's 1 Corinthians. First, judge yourself. And then once you judge yourself, you'll be free to judge some, some other issue or somebody else's issue. And again, making a judgment is simply making a decision. That's it. It could be positive in the sense of, I like something or this is good, or it could be negative, like, ooh, this is bad. Like some people will look outside, see the sun bright and shining, a nice cool breeze, the birds chirping, and they make a judgment. I like this. The next day, it might be rainy and stormy and cold. I don't like this. Well, those are judgments. Let's get out of that realm of foolishness and silliness that the world has actually established, but much of the church has adopted. It's pretty bad when the church adopts the world's ideas and then tries to make them spiritual. It's the same thing again with love. Anyways, back to my book. So here's my book. It's called uh, Time for Transition by uh, Dr. Robert Enos. Yes, I am a doctor. I don't flaunt it, but I am. And I just want to touch upon some things because the first chapter is called, Do We Need Prophets? I'm just going to answer that question real quick. Of course we need prophets. Of course we need prophets. We need the prophetic word of the Lord. We need God's word and we need God's wisdom. And we need those ones called prophets that God can speak to us through them to give us messages from heaven and direction from heaven. And even, yes, correction from heaven. And yes, blessing from heaven. So yes, we need prophets. But that's not what I want to talk about. In the first chapter, I will read the first page of the first chapter just so you kind of get a gist. It says, Anyone that has been watching world events knows that the world is in a major transition right now. It seems as if the world is coming apart at the seams and hell is winning the battle for the earth. No matter where you turn, strange and bad news is being reported from every corner of the globe. Regardless of where we look, it seems as if all stability is gone and chaos is the new norm. As disheartening as this may be for most, this is the atmosphere that God thrives in. This is the type of situation that the Holy Spirit looks for to prove himself strong. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. No chaos exists that God cannot handle. No void or darkness exists that the Holy Spirit cannot fill and illuminate. 
God thrives in an atmosphere of chaos, an environment that is void and full of darkness. It is here that the Holy Spirit will work to bring light and life out of the darkness, chaos, and emptiness that is all around. So I wanted to, I put that in the very first chapter, very first page, for a reason, to show that it doesn't matter really what we see going on. I mean, don't get me wrong, it does, because we have to see it and we have to live through it. But it doesn't matter in regard to the fact that God is so much bigger than the chaos and the darkness that we see and that we witness every day. God is bigger than that. And again, God actually thrives in this type of environment. Why? Because God is a God of order. But if it's already ordered, then God's power in that regard is not seen fully or not recognized. But when chaos breaks out, that's where God steps in and brings order to the chaos. The early uh, primordial goo of the universe, it was created, but it wasn't formed. Holy Spirit's hovering over that unformed chaos. And when Father God starts to speak, Holy Spirit starts to produce. And what begins to take place is the, the chaos of this brand new creation starts to take shape. What are we going through in the modern time? Chaos. It looks terrible, looks ugly, looks horrible. All kinds of craziness is going on all around us. But what is God doing? He's hovering. And he's about to release a word to bring order into our chaos. He's about to put things together in such a radical way. As a matter of fact, what most Christians don't even realize, while they're looking for end time, they're looking more for Antichrist than they are for Christ. They're looking more for the beast than the Holy Spirit. They're looking more for the problems and the pain than they are the healing, the deliverance, and the answers to all of it. And that's a sad, sad case when people who claim Christ are looking for his adversary more than they are looking for him, the Christ. But nonetheless, the nations and the church and the people of the world are right now being positioned for a powerful move of God. I'm not talking about revival as we've talked about revival. Please don't misunderstand me. Revival is not just coming, it's here and it's growing in the world. I'm not talking about a breath of fresh air. I'm not talking about people just uh, you know, getting saved. Not like that's a bad thing, of course, but I'm not talking about only that. I'm talking about something so much bigger, so much better, so much greater. I'm talking about God himself positioning the nations for a move of God that will transform, will transform the world. I'm not talking about the dirt under our feet, but the hearts and the minds and the souls of the people and the way the world is going to go. There's been this term coined, a new world order. And so many people have come against that concept and idea of a new world order. And while I do agree that when the world starts talking about a new world order, it's not good for us. It's not good for the world. But I can tell you that there is a new world order coming on. Now, those of you guys who don't like me, finish listening. I am not part of the Illuminati. I use the, if I use the term new world order, I already know it's going to happen. Oh, he's part of the Illuminati. Look at that weird gang sign he's throwing because they'll find some picture where my hand was in motion and it sort of looked like some weird Illuminati sign or, you know, something of that nature. Um, 
there'll be a speck of dust flying around in a picture, catching the light just right, and it'll be a bright orb on the photograph, and they'll say, look, he's got demons around him. He's he's a child of the devil. I already hear it coming, you know, so I'm just going to address it right here, right now. Uh, am I prophesying? In a way, I am, but not because it's by the Spirit of the Lord. I just know these people so well. You know, like the other day when I when I put out a podcast about how the church has been feminized, I had one lady accusing me or, and telling and saying that, you know, I said that everything women touch, they ruin. And that was never once did I even say that or even allude to it. But you see, that's what's happening in our world. That's what's happening in our world. I shouldn't laugh because it's, it's not funny, but it's almost funny because it's almost like a comedy skit from a Seinfeld episode or something that you could say one thing and people could twist it so bad that, you know, what they say, it's like that old game telephone. You start with 20 people and you whisper one phrase. You start it on one end and you just whisper it in the ear. The person turns around and whispers in the next ear. And by the time it gets to the 20th person at the end, it's so messed up and so convoluted. Now that I understand that when you're dealing with 20 different people, but this is like one person listening to one podcast and twisting it so bad. What does that point out to? It points out to mental illness. If I can say that the church has been feminized and it needs to be a little bit more masculine to meet and reach men, and somebody says, oh, he says that everything women touch, <laughs> they ruin. It's like, no, I didn't say that at all. I didn't even allude to that. Especially in that same podcast when I point out my wife, who's a pastor at the church, co-founder of the church with me. We have Pastor Abraham and Pastor Adriana. They're both ordained. And Pastor Adriana, by the way, is a woman. Some of the, uh, um, the greatest ministers and the strongest ministers in my church are women. I never want to take that from them. They do a spectacular job. They've done a wonderful job. Great job. I don't know why I'm defending it, especially uh, um, when we're dealing with uh, clear mental illness out there. But hey, that's okay. That's what I'm here for, to point out the issues so that we can face them and get over them. Back to the chaos. Everything that you see in the world right now, yes, even the mentally ill, God thrives in that place in this regard, that if we kind of get out of his way, or even better yet, if we're in agreement with him, he will move and bring great and powerful awesome, world-changing order to our chaos. All the political unrest and chaos that we're seeing in the world right now, God can turn that around if we're in agreement with him. He'll do it anyways. He'll do it without even asking our opinion. But how much better would it be if our opinion was his opinion, that our agreement was with him? So instead of looking up to the sky, waiting for this dude, Antichrist, to show up and ruin things even more, what if we got into our prayer closet and started praying until, until we capture the heart of Jesus, and then we start declaring his words, his heart, into these situations? And as he's moving and doing things on, on one hand, in his way, and we're in agreement, making declaration and starting to move. On the other hand, heaven and earth come together in a powerful way and the chaos starts to take shape into something that works, something that's righteous, something that's holy, and something that ultimately leads to not just a revival in an area or a church, but a worldwide move of God 
that changes the course of history. This is what happens when we start, stop agreeing with Antichrist and stop agreeing with the naysayers and stop agreeing with the mentally ill and stop taking the definition of biblical words and concepts from the world and we start coming into agreement with Jesus. Remember, he's the one that made everything. Everything was made by him, for him, and through him. Everything was made. So if we agree with the maker, we agree with the one who says, yes, I am coming, but he's coming as what? A king on a white horse with many crowns on his head and swords coming from his mouth. He's not coming back as the beat up, tore up lamb. He's coming back as the ruling king. And we keep identifying more with the lamb than with the king. But I want you to know that the era of the lamb in that sense is over. Why? Because he's already been sacrificed and now he's on the throne as a king. He's a lion. We need to start identifying with the lion. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying throw away what the lamb of God did. No, because that's our salvation, of course. But our salvation from what the Lamb of God did is supposed to convert us and change us into something else. And that's a lion, a king. As a matter of fact, we're told that we are kings and we are priests unto our God. And yet we keep identifying as beat up, tore down, broken lambs. Because we keep looking only at the cross. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I never want to put down what Jesus did at the cross. I never want to put down his sacrifice. Never want to put down uh, him being the lamb of God. But at the same time, me being a lamb as one being led to slaughter does nobody any good because there was only one lamb of God and that was Jesus. I don't need to be a lamb. You don't need to be a lamb. What we need to do is rise up and be lions. We need to rise up and be kings because that's what we were called. You were not called a lamb in the sense of the sacrificial lamb, but you were called kings and priests unto our God. And kings rule. Kings rule in the earth. And what are most Christians doing right now? Looking for Antichrist giving up their scepter of authority, giving up their crowns, giving up their throne, and cowering in fear as they look for this dude, Antichrist. Well, if we're operating as kings, kings have great authority. We wouldn't have a thing to worry about. We wouldn't have a thing to worry about. As a matter of fact, some of you have bought into such a big, huge lie about the end times. And why I say lie, do you know in the scripture there's only about five verses that talk directly about Antichrist? Everywhere else, yes, yeah, so Antichrist is only mentioned about five times in scripture in those few verses. Everywhere else, it's assumed. When you read about something of the beast, you read about this person, that person, the man of sin, there's no direct connection to Antichrist at all in most of those passages. It's all assumed. It's an assumption. And when you assume in the word of God and you can't find chapter and verse that makes these direct correlations, I can tell you, and this is almost a pure science, we almost always end up with egg on our face. Almost always. 
Because God is not a God of assumption. He's a God of yes, and he's a God of amen in Christ Jesus. He's a God of surety. He's a God that's firm. He's a God that we can go to. And what we do is we we develop all of these um, doctrines of assumption. Well, you know what we could do? Listen, since that's okay in end-time theology, why don't we just make doctrines of assumption on everything else? Why do you think there's so many men running around right now wearing women's clothing, thinking it's okay, and even going to some churches thinking it's okay? That's all based on assumption. And if you've bought into the end-time theology lie, don't you dare get mad at them. They're doing the exact same thing that you do. Where do you think they learned it from? You see how that works? Or I should say, do you see how that doesn't work? Why don't we just take the Word of God for what it says? So when you read a passage or a verse that distinctly says Antichrist, you know exactly who it's talking about. If it says man of sin, well, I know a lot of men of sin. I know a lot of men that sin that could fit that. Do you see how that works? So stop trying to assume things and let's get back to what the Word of God says. And I've been all over the place. Let's get back to my book for just a moment. So the first chapter of my book deals with primarily Eli, the failed leadership of Eli. Uh, He was the high priest at the time. And His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests under his leadership. Eli um, was a very weak leader. Weak because Eli represents stagnant, lethargic spiritual leadership. And Hophni and Phinehas represent blatant, rebellious, and sinful leadership. Because, remember, Eli was the high priest. He was kind of in charge. He was the boss. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, worked under him as priests. And they were stealing from the people. They were forcing the women that came to worship at the tabernacle. They were forcing them to have sex with them. They were taking the best portions of the meat for themselves instead of giving it to God. And the Bible says that because of their behavior, they caused the men of Israel to abhor or have disdain or a kind of a hatred for the offering and for the sacrifices. In other words, They no longer wanted to worship God the way God asked them to worship them because of Hophni and Phinehas. So instead of bringing them into a deeper relationship with God, they were severing relationship with God with those people. They were turning away from God in disgust because of their behavior, because they were the representatives of God. So every time God would reprimand Eli, Eli would just kind of go and just give his sons a little slap on the wrist. He should have removed them from office. He should have sat them down. He should have removed them completely. That would have been the right thing to do. But because he was a weak father and weak leader, a weak high priest, he allowed his sons to continue doing what they were doing with just this weak verbal reprimand. Oh, oh, kids, you shouldn't have done it. It, it kind of reminds me of Biden and Hunter, his son. Weak leadership, weak fathering, and a wicked son. Do you see what I mean? How we're seeing this stuff? again in our day and age and in our time. But God is going to work. God is going to move. God is going to do something spectacular. So let's start agreeing with God. This is all before um, Samuel comes onto the scene. Now, the reason I point this out in this book, because again, this book is pointing out issues that we deal with in our world today and in the church world today. And there's a passage in 1 Timothy, or a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that says, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, 
How will he take care of the church of God? And what I point out in my book here is one of the biggest problems that I've seen growing up in church and being in church. I'm 55 right now, almost 56. And I've seen this my entire life. Some of the worst kids or the worst people in most any given church are the preacher's kids. And what to make it worse, not only their behavior, but nobody's allowed to reprimand them. I've actually seen people asked to leave a church for reprimanding the pastor's children when the pastor's children needed to be reprimanded. One of the churches I was a part of when I was a kid, I personally, if I had the choice, I would have left this church, but I wasn't in charge in that sense because I was a kid. But one of the past, the pastor at that time, his, his sons were alcoholics, drug addicts, had anger, serious anger management problems, fighting, uh, arrested, all kinds of problems. And you know what? The guy didn't have enough integrity to step down. And the church board didn't have enough integrity to sit him down. But the Bible makes it very clear that if you cannot, if you cannot rule your own household, how can you rule the church of God? How can you literally be a pastor or a leader in the church if you can't even lead your own household well? We saw that in the story of Eli. Eli was a weak spiritual leader because he was a weak father. He was a weak high priest because he was first a weak father. And, and his weak fathering found its way into the pulpit, so to speak. And it's the same way with every pastor. Don't think, pastor, don't think. Don't you dare think for just a moment that you get some kind of pass. That, oh, my son or my daughter is all messed up, all in sin, addiction or whatever. But that's okay. That has nothing to do with the church. It has everything to do with the church. Because if you can't even take care of, um, you know, what? Three, four, five kids? How can you take care of 50, 60, 100, or 500 people in a church? You can't. You are fooling yourself, and you're trying to fool the people. But I don't even want to really talk to you pastors, because you should know better, and you should have integrity. If, that, if your kids are that messed up, you should step down and, and work on your family and get your kids together. But I'm working. I'm going to talk to you about you uh, church folks. You go to a church, and your pastor... You may love him. He might be a great guy to you, but his kids are all messed up. Or his wife just cheated on him and left him. He can't even rule his own household. What are you doing in that church? I mean, honestly, really. Now, the reason I'm asking that is because right here in my own hometown, there's a church, and it's a fairly decent-sized church, and the pastor's son impregnated a, a young lady in the church. Now, I'm a, I'm a man of grace. I'm a man, you know, hey, especially in our world and our culture today, at least in one area, I thank God, at least this young man had an eye out for women. Hey, that's a good thing. And mistakes are made. Okay, and I understand that. I don't think the guy should have been thrown out, the pastor at least should have been thrown out on his ear because his son uh, um, did this. But that same son was very manipulative, very controlling, very abusive to this young lady, which shows you what went on in that household as he was growing up. The young lady finally got enough sense to break up with him and, and went to another church, repented, got her life together. He didn't. The pastor's son didn't. 
Pastor's son was still drinking and partying and getting drunk and getting loaded and hanging out with, with uh, 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 well, the wrong crowd, gag beggars and such. Then he went and got another girl in the church pregnant. So now he's a predator. He's after the young ladies in the church. He's a predator. And what did the pastor do then? He should have stepped down. He should have stepped down. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, he should have stepped down. And if he refused to step down at that point, then the, the elders and the, and the council of that church should have sat him down. Bunch of cowards that don't know the word of God. All of them. And I have no problem telling them this. I have no problem telling them this. Matter of fact, I hope they tune into this podcast. I hope they call me on the phone. I'll tell them. I hope we can meet. Tell them to their face. So what does this pastor do? Well, instead of stepping down like he should have, he brings his son on staff and into the ministry of this church. Yes, you heard it right here, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it right here. That is exactly opposite of what the Bible tells us we are to do. That's exactly opposite of what the Bible tells us, how we're to act and how we are to lead even the church and our families. That pastor, if he had any integrity at all, that denomination or that religious group, if they had any integrity at all, would set him down. Yes, bring restoration. Yes, restore him. Yes, restore that family. Yes, teach him and train him how, one, pastor, how to be a father and a grandfather. And then this young man, how to control himself not just sexually, but his anger problems, how to stop being so manipulative so he might need some deliverance or some therapy. But they should have worked on with him. Agree. I don't, I don't, I'm not into throwing anybody away, but I am big on stepping people down when they need to. They need to sit down. They need to sit down. If they need to get out of the pulpit, they need to get out of the pulpit. If they need to be retrained, they need to be retrained. To do anything less is a lack of integrity in the body of Christ. And that's what I'm after. Why? Because I have a love and a passion for the body of Christ. I have a love and a passion for the bride of Christ. And we have to embrace this thing called integrity once again. So what went on with Eli and his sons? Let me tell you something. This is sad. And I'm not telling you this because I think we're in that position with this family over here that I just spoke about yet. But the Bible is very clear. It says that God wanted to kill Hophni and Phinehas for what they were doing. How they were causing the people to turn away from God. God takes that very seriously. So when we don't act in integrity, we don't walk in integrity, and pastors and fathers, when you don't have integrity and you can't rule your own household, you are getting dangerously close to either yourself or your children where God says, I'm not going to deal with them anymore. I'm removing them for good. And if you don't like that, you don't think that's right, you don't think that's our God, then you don't know the word of God because it says that clearly. God wanted to kill Hophni and Phinehas. I'm not saying I like it, but it's in there. So I have to accept it. And for myself, I have to rise up in the, the best or, or the greatest amount of integrity I know how and beg God for the rest. It's that time. God's speaking to the chaos. And he's going to bring order into our chaos. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us here at Table Flippers. I would love to hear from you. You can find my contact information at www.gwcclancaster.org. That's gwcclancaster.org. 
please let us know how we are doing. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments. Have a fantastic day.